if you don't have an outline, they're uh, uh, on the back lobby there. I believe maybe they're in your bulletin. You could get one. Uh, and if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, money and tithing and giving, as it says there uh, on uh, the top of your outline. As you know, uh, if you know me, I don't like talking about money, uh, but it's in the Bible, so I don't have any choice. <laughs> I guess I like to distance myself from maybe the stereotype that's out there that preachers just want your money. Uh, that is not the case. Um, God has blessed us. Uh, we have some generous givers, you folks in this church, and we are blessed in many ways. But it's in the Bible, and so uh, apparently God thinks it's important. Uh, I, I found this uh, statistic. There are 500 Bible verses pertaining to the topics of faith and prayer. And there are 2,350 verses that have to do with the subject of money. Uh, nearly 15% of everything Jesus spoke about related to money and possessions. 16 out of 38 parables dealt with the topic of money. So uh, if you're human and you have bills to pay uh, and uh, you have things that you'd like to do, I think it's just part of life. We think about money, we're concerned about money, we're concerned about bills that we have. Uh, but Jesus really wants to be Lord of our finances, and he wants us to really to deliver us from fear. Would it be good to be free from fear, especially in 2024? Okay, well, God wants us to have freedom in this area, and part of the freedom of that is gonna come from our generosity that's directed and motivated by the Holy Spirit, and God saying up in heaven, you know what? If you put me first in your finances, I'm gonna take care of you. My wife and I, whenever we talk about this subject, we recount things back 20, 30 years where unknown, unexpected interventions have come in situations, and we just sort of look at each other anymore and say, well, that's God. He takes care of us. He intervenes. He shows up. He gives provision. And uh, it has happened so many times, we have come to expect it. Would you stand with me, please? And let me, uh, uh, this, I've given you two whole chapters here. I promise I won't read the whole thing. But I hope that you will take the time to read it because there's much here that is powerful on this issue of money. And Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, okay? And uh, he's, uh, the, church is, uh, in, in the church in Jerusalem is having a hard time, persecution, probably a famine is also going on. And he's encouraging these churches up in the north to give to an offering uh, to help them out. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they, have, that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our, our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God to all of us. And jump over to chapter 9 uh, and let me read a couple verses there. Verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. 
that it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Would you pray with me? I heard that amen. Maybe it was a woo-woo. Father, uh, Son, Holy Spirit, we bow before you today and we thank you, Jesus, that you're Emmanuel, God with us, that you came and you walked on this earth for 33 years. You died on the cross. You rose from the dead. You set captives free. You're coming again. I ask, Lord, for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to flow through me now. What I should say, may that be said. What should be deleted, may that be deleted. May your people grow deep in your word. May they rest in your provision, in your promises to take care of us, your promises to meet all of our needs. May we not walk in fear about the resources that we need to live. May we be cheerful givers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I am so glad that I was taught at a young age that tithing is important. And uh, at a young age, I realized that whatever I made, that I wanted to take, uh, that the Bible instructed, that the Lord wanted me to take 10% of that and uh, uh, give it to his work, whatever that might be. Uh, I'm not saying that's always been fun, and I haven't always been a cheerful giver. Uh, when I was in seminary on the East Coast, okay, I worked at two restaurants and uh, made enough uh, money to offset some of my tuition, but not all of it. And what I would do is I would get a a check from one restaurant one week, and then I would write it in my little ledger, and I would take off 10% and, and write that there. Then the next week, I would get the other one. Well, I did that each week. Well, one week, I had some bills coming in, and uh, I got the one check, and I said, okay, well, i got to pay this bill, and, and uh, I really don't have enough to tie this week, so I'm going to pay this, and next week, I'll add this tithe to this uh, the check from the tithe from this check, and then we'll pay it then. Okay, well, I got to the second week, and I took the tie that I hadn't paid yet with the tie that needed to come from this check, and there was about $7 left. And I'm not proud of the fact, but I was mad. It's like, geez, 7 bucks left. It was very irritating. And thank the Lord for his mercy. But anyways, uh, I wrote out the check for that tithe from the two weeks and, and uh, sent it, I believe, to the church that I was attending uh, and, and about an hour later, I went to the post office uh, at the seminary where, we, uh, where I was attending, where Lisa and I were attending, and I opened up my box, and I pulled out an envelope, and there was a check in there for $1,000. I literally leaned my head against the post office boxes there, and I said, Lord, I'm sorry. I will never forget this the rest of my life. And I will give generously, and I will tithe, and I will put you, make you Lord of my finances. And I've never been able to get that out of my mind. And it's like I just looked up at heaven and said, hmm, interesting timing, Lord. Uh, uh, God takes care of his people. Now, tithing doesn't make any sense economically. Okay? 
If you're an accountant or if you have a master's in business administration and you see the bills and you see the income, you know what you need to do to cover everything. And to say in that moment, well, I'm just going to take 10% off the top and give it to the Lord's work, an economist would just look at you and say, what are you doing? You're nuts. Okay? But there is a divine chemistry in tithing which indicates what's in our hearts. Do I believe God that he's going to take care of me Okay, or am I going to scrimp and, and pinch and, and live in fear about the bills that I have and the resources that are coming in and maybe that uh, they're not going to be enough. So it's really a heart issue, okay? Uh, and there is an incredible joy uh, in giving, in tithing, and in resting and believing God's promises. If you had some kids at your house on Christmas morning and they were opening presents, or maybe it's been years since you had kids at your house, but can you recall maybe uh, coming to Christmas morning and of course the kids are all in a hubbub and they were probably up since 4 a.m. and they probably came into your room and tugged on your, uh, you know, the quilt on your bed and said, mom and dad, get up, it's time to open presents. And you look at the clock and you say, it is 4.15, go back to bed. Okay, so but then finally mom and dad get up and it becomes present time and, and, and everybody's sitting around it and begins to open presents. I bet you that this happened to you and I know that it happened to me. A kid's opening a present and you got them the present and they're opening it and you are sitting there so excited to see the look on their face when they open that present whether it's a new pair of jeans or it's a skill saw or a sweater or, or who knows what. But you know it's what they want and you cannot wait to see the look on your face. And they open the present and they say, thanks, Dad, thanks, Mom, and they're so excited, okay? Can I tell you something? There is more joy, believe it or not, in the parent that gave the gift than in the kid that received the gift. Why? Because it's better to give than to receive. The parents are sitting there like, open the present, open the present. I can't wait to see you open the present. They're excited about the joy of giving the present. Now the kid's bouncing off the ceiling too because they got their present and they're excited. But the Bible is true when it says it's more blessed to give than to receive. The Bible is correct when it says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You help someone out economically, you give someone a ride, you buy a homeless person a hamburger, whatever it is. You know what happens? You drive away and there's something happening inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit that says, this is why I'm alive. Not to narcissistic, narcissistically live for ourselves and what I want, okay? But to serve others. Now, this is the way Jesus lived, obviously. He left the glory of heaven. He emptied himself of all the privileges of heaven and the royalty, if you will, of heaven. Did not compromise his eternal deity, but took on human flesh and became a servant and died in our place. So he modeled that for us, and he told us and has instructed us in his word to live the same way. Friends, there's incredible joy in giving, and there's incredible joy 
okay, in saying, I will serve others, I will live for others, I will give, I will give generously. In 1848, Charles Dickens' book, uh, a small novel, if you will, uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, was published. Okay, and I don't know why it came out on December 19th. You'd think he'd want to take longer advantage of the Christmas shopping season, okay? But it came out six days before Christmas, okay? And probably people were buying it long after Christmas and are actually still buying it to this day, okay? And we have this infamous character in A Christmas Carol called Scrooge, okay? We all know the story well. Okay, Scrooge is a nail-biting accountant type, okay, pondering over every nickel and every cent, okay? And his employee is Bob Cratchit, okay? Which, and he loves Christmas, and of course, uh, Scrooge's famous line, which has really entered the lexicon of the whole English language, bah humbug, okay, is with us forever because of that. Well, Charles Dickens, what he does, and you know, again, the story, okay, but uh, uh, Scrooge uh, has a visitor, three visitors, three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas uh, future. And he sees from the first ghost scenes from his childhood and his growing up years. And then he sees some uh, scenes from the present. And then from the last one, the ghost of Christmas future, he sees himself dying okay, with all of his money, but no friends, and after he's dead, no one misses him. And he wakes up from that ghostly encounter and has a, shall we say, a come-to-Jesus moment. A transformation happens. Well, Bob Cratchit has taken Christmas Day off to be with his family, okay, and he comes back on the 26th, and Scrooge is at his desk giggling, now, something is odd about that, okay? Something is weird, okay? And Scrooge looks at him and says, you know what? I think I'm going to give you a rage. Well, Bob Cratchit, I think, came close to a heart attack at that moment. But the joy of a Christmas carol is that Scrooge realized, you know what? There is great joy in giving. There's great joy, and there's also this sinister, self-centered focus that we get when we're stuck on money, we're stuck on pennies, we're stuck on nino, because ultimately we're not trusting God, we're trusting our own efforts to protect ourselves, to make sure that we have enough, okay? So what can we learn from this passage? Look at your Bible there, and if the sound people can put uh, um, that uh, map that I... Uh, Asked you to get uh, on the screen for a second. Okay, there's an, a map of, uh, of uh, uh, Bible times at that time. You can see Jerusalem way down in the bottom right. Okay, you can see the Mediterranean Sea there. Okay, and this is one of Paul's missionary journeys. Okay, so uh, Jesus lived around Jerusalem there, the Sea of Galilee or whatnot, died. Uh, rose from the dead, went back to heaven, and then the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. And you remember what Jesus said, go ye into all the world, proclaiming the gospel, okay? Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Can I tell you something? That's exactly what's happened. You don't seem too impressed by that. I'm impressed. Jesus said, go ye into all the world, and it is exactly what has happened. God's people have gone all over the globe, 
okay? Spreading the gospel, and this is where it happened. Just say amen. amen. Okay, I know tithing sermons are depressing, but hang with me, will you? Okay, so Paul on one of his journeys goes there. You see Ephesus, uh, you see Asia, you go across the Aegean Sea, and you see Corinth. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. Right above there is Athens, and then right above there is Macedonia. And what Paul is talking about is the churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Okay? Uh, and, and those churches gave generously to a, a tithe and an offering for the uh, Christians back in Jerusalem. Okay? Who were definitely under persecution, and there was probably a famine going on also. Okay? So he's telling Corinth, give generously like these churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea have done. Okay? Look back at your outline if you would. Okay? Corinth was in the south, and Macedonia was in the north. Okay? So Corinth is down at the bottom. It's called the Peloponnesia Peninsula, and it sticks down the Mediterranean. Athens is there, and then these churches are way up in the north. Okay? So rather than Paul saying... Okay, you need to give more. You're a bunch of tightwads. What's your problem? He cites a positive example, which I think is good. And look at this example. Look in verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Friends, grace is God's unmerited favor. And I want you to look at where grace shows up in this text. In verse 1, if you care to, circle the word grace. Over in verse 6, you'll see the word grace right at the end of verse 6. Right at the end of verse 7, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, G.K. Chesterton in his writing says that a lack of gratitude is the most horrible sin that there is. We live in a constant state, I believe, of gratitude, saying, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this provision. Now we could live, as the common phrase goes, looking at the glass that it's half empty or it's half full. The Lord clearly spoke to me, and I've told you this before a couple years ago, and I heard the Holy Spirit say, Drew, you can be thankful for everything in your life. That simple phrase changed my life. Now, why is that so important? Anybody ever struggle with negativity? Don't raise your hand. Don't you get in trouble. Pessimism, negativity, the glass is half full. You know, you've always got a kind of a sour confession coming off your lips, whatever. Friends, let's not do that. Let's live from a place of gratitude. We have been recipients of the grace of God. We did nothing to earn it. God has promised to take care of us. He's promised to meet all of our needs. And we can live in a continual place of gratitude and thanksgiving, dwelling in drenched, if you would, in the grace of God. And from an overflow of that, we can share in the joy of giving. Now, if this hasn't hit you yet, ask the Lord to give you a come-to-Jesus moment like Scrooge had. Okay? A come-to-Jesus moment. 
where you lift up your eyes from the ledger of your life, whatever it says, and say, God, you've been good. You saved me from my sins. You rose from the dead. You love me. You want me to walk in faith, okay? And that's what I think these passages challenge us to do. Look at the first blank there. Corinth was in the south and Macedonia was in the north, as I just showed you uh, on, on the map there, okay? Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were cities in the north, okay? Persecution was hitting the believers in Jerusalem, okay? So they were getting reports, okay? Uh, no doubt people that were confessing that Jesus was the Messiah were being persecuted by the Jews, okay? There was probably a famine going on. Acts chapter 11 uh, shows us a prophecy where someone was prophesying a famine is coming. We don't know the dates of that exactly, okay? But there was a difficult situation, okay? And I, I recount my experience in this church for many, many years. When we have heard of needs in Africa and Moldova, and Ukraine and other places, your giving to those needs has been phenomenal. Now, I'm sure that we were all a little concerned during COVID and things, but uh, uh, the elders and the board members and the treasurer were saying, Drew, I cannot believe the giving of God's people. There were churches around the country that were closing completely. Okay? And God blessed us through your giving and generosity. And I just rejoice in that. That's amazing. So I think we understand this. But as you know, every year or two, uh, we do a tithing sermon just to remind you. Because Tim won't listen to me about this. Um, I'm just teasing him. But uh, uh, and the other thing we do, which started during COVID or shortly after that, is we don't pass the plate. Okay. The boxes are back there. You can give as the Lord leads you. Okay. But... Frankly, if someone visits a church, I don't want to see an offering plate pass in front of their face. They're new to church. Maybe they're not a believer. Uh, maybe they have stereotypes about churches and money. I don't want to contribute to that, okay? But the boxes are back there, and you give as the Lord uh, leads you, okay? And you will be blessed because it's what happens in the Bible. It just happens, okay? So look in verse 2. Something very strange is here. In the midst of a severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I don't know about you, but this is strange. Did I give you all the blanks for that first section? Uh, persecution was hitting the believer in Jerusalem, and Paul was encouraging the believers to help with the needs in Jerusalem. In the middle of the second uh, section on your, column, uh, your outline there, I've got those phrases set off uh, in the middle. Severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, rich generosity. Now, I don't know about what happens to you when you go through a severe trial or extreme poverty, but I, I mean, giving is not the first thing that comes to my mind. I mean, it's a natural human reaction, okay? And I know people, and I've talked to people over the years that went through the depression and have had very impoverished childhoods and are still not recovered from that because they know what it's like to have not enough to eat. They know what it's like to eat dented cans and the contents thereof. Okay, they know what that's like, and they don't want to go through that again. Well, that's okay on one level. Okay, no, nobody wants to be poor. Nobody wants to live from paycheck to paycheck. 
But when that thinking sinks into your brain and your heart, okay, and you get stuck there, you're not walking in faith. And you're not believing that God's going to take care of you. And you're not looking at these promises because it's stuck in your mind. I'm not going to have enough. I remember what it's like to be poor, okay? So you have to be careful about that. You got to say, Lord, am I looking at my finances with fear and with really a poverty mentality, okay? Or am I going to believe your promises? And what fascinates me about this is that these churches in Macedonia had severe trials going on, but overflowing joy. It's a paradox. If I got trials going on, I probably am not going to be full of joy. Okay? If I've got extreme poverty going on, I'm probably not going to have rich generosity because I'm looking at the circumstances around me and I'm stuck right there. And do you know what? Because of the gospel, we don't have to be stuck right there. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. His spirit is inside of us. He has promised to take care of us and meet all of our needs. Are you going to believe God's promises or are you going to read, believe the Wall Street Journal? Very serious. Are you going to believe the promises of God or are you going to believe the economic assessments that the world is saying about 2024? Do you know what? I'm going to believe what this says. And I have seen it too many times in my short or long, depending on your perspective, 64 years. The promises of God are true. He takes care of his people. It's miraculous. It doesn't make any sense. Okay? But it is living by faith and saying, I'm going to trust my Father in heaven. And I'm going to trust what this book says. And I'm going to enjoy the rest and the peace from that trusting. And I'm also going to be a generous giver and enjoy helping people, serving people, tithing, supporting God's ministry, supporting missionaries, okay, which this church does and has miraculously and phenomenally done ever since I've been a little kid. It's the testimony of the faithfulness of God and giving and tithing and being a cheerful giver. So we've got this paradox here that doesn't make any sense. But in the economy of God and the way he works, it's exactly like my Father in heaven. Exactly. Okay? In the midst of severe trial, overflowing joy. In the midst of extreme poverty, rich generosity. Would you turn up back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? I want to see you to see another place where Paul has this strange paradox where he puts seemingly contradictory things together and it's really one of my favorite sections in the scripture. And he says here in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. He is talking about us. Okay? The human body, this deteriorating, disintegrating human body. But for some reason, God has put this treasure inside of us, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The presence of God is in his people. When you were born again, the presence of God came in. You became a new creation in Christ. And that spirit resides in you, began to reside in you. And then we go through this process as we grow in Christ of learning to listen to that spirit rather than our own ideas and thoughts and whatever. 
Okay? But he, he rejoices in this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. Now look at these paradoxes that are contrasting and, and seem odd. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, if you just read one side of the equation, you've got hard-pressed, you've got crushed, you've got perplexed, you've got persecuted, you've got abandoned, okay? And you just want to go, well, geez, what's the use? Friends, this is the normal Christian life. Everything in this life is not going to be positive and wonderful and rejoicing and glorious and, and hallelujah chorus and whatever. Anybody got stuff you're dealing with? We've all got it. Because we're walking on this planet, okay, with people, with family, with bills, with health problems, with whatever else. Okay, it's life. But Paul makes this amazing contrast. You know what? All this stuff can be going on, but look at verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Scripture says we've been crucified with Christ. The Christian life. You give up your rights. You've been crucified with Christ. You surrender to him, okay? And you're joined with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mutual indwelling. You surrender your rights. But look what it says next. Verse 10, we always carry around our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Friends, this is phenomenal. Do you know that the life of Jesus himself is inside of you? And you're saying, Drew, I looked in the mirror and, and it didn't look too good this morning. Well, I had the same glance in the mirror. But that's what the Bible says. Are you going to believe what that says? Or are you going to look at your checkbook and make assessment about your reality? Or look in the mirror and make an assessment? Or your kids or your whatever it is. Friends, we surrender our rights. We're united with Jesus. His presence is in us. We go through things in the life. And you know what they do? They remind us that our resources are not of this earth. Our resources are Jesus and his resurrection power that's in us. And I'm beginning to say this in my journal, in my own thoughts and prayers. Lord, this is what I feel about this situation. But in your economy and under the purview of your power, I'm not going to go by just this, my assessment of it. I'm going to go by the scriptural assessment of who I am in Christ and who Jesus is. That takes some doing. It takes some doing. But you know what? It's renewing the mind according to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Renew your mind in 2024. Would you say that with me? Renew your mind in 2024. If you're stuck in an earthly assessment of your situation, you need to see what Paul is saying here. Jesus rose from the dead and the life of Jesus is in us and the circumstances around us that may be troubling, they are reminding us to look to God 
not to the circumstances, okay? So I want you to see that because it's similar to what Paul says in here. Severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, rich generosity. So in the middle section there, fill in these blanks if you would. Paul was directed to Macedonia through a vision. What are we talking about? Okay, turn over to Acts 16 for a moment. I hope you have your Bible on your lap. Uh, you can make a, a, a New Year's uh, uh, resolution tonight if you're into that kind of thing. I will bring my Bible to church. Say that with me. I will bring my Bible to church. Some of you, I don't see you flipping pages. So you need to follow that resolution in 2024. Okay, uh, uh, let me just uh, tap you on the shoulder. Bring your Bible to church, have it on your lap. You will get more from it if those pages get worn out and dirty. Okay, so do that in uh, uh, 2024. Look what it says here in uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Pergia and Galatia, and having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now that seems like a strange phrase to me. Why would the Holy Spirit keep them from preaching the word in the province of Asia? I'd love to give you an answer, but I don't know. But you know what? Gee, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. He's our guide. He's the spirit of truth. And you know what? When you don't know what to do and you say, Holy Spirit, would you guide me? Can I tell you? He will. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going to Asia now. You're going this other direction. And see what it says next in verse 7. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit, would not allow them to. So we got one closed door. We got a second closed door. Look what it says in verse 8. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Okay, so this is what we're talking about. Okay, and see what it's, this is the region we're talking about. Okay, a vision from a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now you may think visions are weird, prophecies are weird, blah, 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 blah. blah. Friends, it's in the Bible, okay, and I couldn't agree more with my wife. Acts is one of the most exciting books in the Bible. And if you haven't read it lately, you need to read it. Okay? It's the presence of God falling on the people of God, empowering them to go out and proclaim the gospel. Can I tell you something? We need a new baptism of the Holy Spirit now. We need the presence of God to fill us. Okay, now we could go down a theological road for just a moment. Bear with me. Friends, the presence of God came into you the moment you said, or maybe you haven't said this yet, I encourage you to do this. Jesus, forgive you my sins, come into my heart. When you pray that prayer in faith, God hears that prayer, and the presence of God comes in, and you are born again. Just read John 3 with Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit comes in, you become a new creation in Christ, your heart that's dead in sin and lost in your just pulverizing self-interest comes to life and you became a new creation in Christ. So the Holy Spirit resides in you there. Is that the end of the story? No, no, and no again. Why? 
From that point forward, you're on your way to heaven. You're a child of the king. Your sins are forgiven. You have the righteousness of Christ. You've been joined with Jesus. From that word forward, we learn how to walk with the Holy Spirit. Say, Jesus, what do I do here? Lord, I have this situation. Okay, Lord, I'm filled with, with anger or, or pride or worry or fear, whatever. Help me, Lord. I want to walk in your spirit. And that's this gradual process of learning to walk in the Holy Spirit. Why do I say that? Friends, there's always more of the Holy Spirit available if you want it. There's no end. The Bible says the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and said, streams of living water will flow from your inmost being. That's why I've been challenging off and on about this issue of prayer and spending time with Jesus. You know what will happen? Whether you get your answers as quickly as you want or not, their prayer is its own reward because you're sitting at the feet of Jesus. You will be changed. Something will happen inside of you. And you'll begin to cherish that time because it will change your life and gradually permeate the presence of the Holy Spirit throughout your whole being. Okay? It's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing thing. Okay? So the Holy Spirit works here and speaks to Paul about this region of Macedonia. And this is when he went there for the first time. Look at your outline there. Middle section. Paul was directed to Macedonia through a vision. We just read that in, Matthew, in Acts 16. These believers were an example of joyful giving. Severe trials, overflowing joy. Extreme poverty, rich generosity, okay? Third one, Paul's description of the Macedonian believers seems contradictory, okay? It doesn't make any sense, okay? But it's the language of faith, it's the language of the believer, and it's the reality Okay, in trials, you can have joy. In poverty, you can be richly generous. The next blank there, from an economic standpoint, Paul's descriptions make no sense. And the last one there, the believers gave willingly and sacrificially. Look in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and beyond their ability entirely on their own. I love this line. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Several years ago, the Matuas, a missionary family in Africa, uh, needed a new car. And uh, praise God, through the generous giving of this church, we were able to uh, help them buy a new car and uh, sent them the money so that they could get that car. Okay? Uh, uh, can you imagine the missions committee standing up here and saying, we have this need in the Ukraine, or we have this need in China, or we have this need so-and-so, and everybody getting up and running to the front with their checkbook and say, please let me give. These believers urgently pleaded, please, can we help? Usually when there's a need in many circumstances, people are running the other way. Now, 
Our church largely understands this and believes this because we've had generous givers in this church for a long, long time. Again, it's the counterintuitive approach of the gospel that our hearts are changed and we want to give and we've enjoyed the gift of hilarious giving. And it is hilarious. It's more hilarious than the night, Tonight Show or the Comedy Channel or anything else. Why? You are experiencing the joy and the power of the gospel in the very cells of your being as you give. Remember the parent on Christmas morning watching his kids open the presents? The kids are excited. And you know where the joy really is? In the parent that gave the gift. Because they've experienced it's more blessed to give than to receive. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. See what it says here? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The last blank in that middle section, thanks for that whoop whoop there. Okay, uh, it's kind of encouraging to hear some response now and then. The believers gave willingly and sacrificially. Okay, now, some general thoughts on giving. I have some volunteers. Uh, <laughs> some of them didn't volunteer. I just twisted their arms and told them this is what you're going to do. Uh, those readers that have a verse, would you come to the front, please? This in the past, I've had people stand right where they are, but nobody hears it because they don't have a mic. Okay, so we're going to start over here with Dan, and we're going to just look at some general verses about tithing that are in the scriptures. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. After Abram returned from defeating Cato-Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Leviticus 27, verse 30 through 33. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be the holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse. Your whole nation because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be room enough to store it. The word of the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 12:6. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offering and sacrifices, your tithes and your special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and your flocks. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Thank you. Now, uh, just a couple thoughts in closing about tithing. Those scriptures are all Old Testament scriptures. And the question is raised from time to time. We are New Testament believers under the old, uh, under the new covenant, okay? Do those verses apply to us? I'm going to say yes and no. How's that confusing enough for you? Okay. Um, I believe as New Testament believers, and I think this scripture helps us with this. Look again to your Bible there. Okay. In verse uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Okay? And we have a similar phrasing in the beginning of chapter 8, verse 3, okay? A decision was made on that individual believer, Lord, this is what I'm going to give. I think 10%, the tithe that we see in the Old Testament, is a place to start. Now, I use the example from my experience as a pastor. I've had single moms come up to me. I've had people that are dealing with overwhelming medical bills, job loss, whatever. And they've come and they've said, Pastor, I can't tithe right now. And I've looked at them and I've said, don't worry about it. Okay? Get through this crisis, whatever it is. Okay? Okay? Hang in there. Okay, and I've had people come back to me after those experiences and say, Pastor, I'm so thrilled. We we got out of the woods. We got this paid and we get to tithe again. Okay, I believe there's liberty there and freedom under the new covenant. Okay, that if you're going through a crisis and you're living by the skin of your teeth from paycheck to paycheck, God's not up in heaven with his divine ledger saying, boy, you better get it together. He is not doing that. Get through the crisis, get the next job, get through the medical issue, whatever, okay? God is with you. He loves you. He's going to provide for your needs, okay? But when it passes, and this is the warning I give, don't get stuck in that spot where you're not giving. Because you know what will happen? You will lose the blessing. My friend Dave Hall was back east many years ago, and he pulled over to the side of the road, and uh, uh, there was a, a family there that had a flat tire and a bunch of kids, okay? And he pulled over to the side of the road, and it was a black family, and they are all dressed up in their Sunday finery, and they're on the way to church. For whatever reason, nobody knew how to change a flat tire. Well, my cousin Dave jumped out, okay, and got them the tire changed, okay? And when he got done, the dad tried to give him a $20 bill. He said, no, I don't want your $20 bill. I just wanted to help you out. He said, you take my $20 bill. I don't want to lose my blessing. 
And he gave him the $20 bill back, and my cousin Dave said, okay, I'll take the $20. I don't want you to miss your blessing. <laughs> and I'll be blessed by your $20 bill. Friends, it's an example of someone understanding tithing and understanding giving, that they make Jesus Lord, and you trust him to provide for you, and you give, okay, and you are blessed from that. Okay, and that's the way this whole thing uh, works, okay? So I think that those Old Testament scriptures are valid and they're good and they're a place to start. In the New Testament, okay, we have tithes and we have gifts and we have offerings, okay? So you can tithe 10%, okay, to your local church, to a missionary, whatever the case may be, okay? But then don't stop there. When a need comes up, when a crisis comes up, when somebody loses a job, when somebody uh, puts something in the benevolent fund, okay, we get calls all the time from people who need propane, who need firewood, whatever, okay, and we designate those gifts uh, to that situation. To me, is a beautiful picture of a healthy church living for other people, okay, and it's an incredible uh, joy. Look back to your outline there, and we'll wrap this up. In the New Testament, Jesus is looking for joyful and generous hearts that are not enslaved to the idol of money. Okay? Uh, and turn over to Matthew chapter 6. See what it says there in Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay? Don't have a divided heart. Just serve God. Pay your bills. Okay? Trust him. Rest in his love. Okay? Uh, but don't let money be an idol in your heart. And then jump over to Acts chapter 20. I think we already mentioned this, but I hope you'll underline it in your Bible because it's a great verse. Acts chapter 20, verse 35 says this. In everything I did, this is Paul talking. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Okay? And then the last one, worship team, you could come up, please. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay? Warning from Scripture. And I, we can see those kind of warnings all throughout the Scripture and a challenge for us in this. Trust God. Believe Him. Tithe and give generously. Rest in Him. Do not walk in fear, okay? He's going to take care of us. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank You for these Scriptures. We thank You for this example of these generous churches in Macedonia. They were in a severe trial. They were in extreme poverty, yet they chose to trust you and not limit themselves by their circumstances. They believed that there was a God in heaven who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and promises to take care of his people.
And you have done that, Lord, all throughout the ages. You have taken care of your people. I pray that we would not succumb to the spirit of the age, Lord, which is just penny-pinching and fretting and worrying. May we rest in your unfailing love and be generous givers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.